Okay, so <coughs> welcome. Just to explore some of the ideas which I think are are pretty uh, relevant to us and link into um, what we're trying to achieve. What we're trying to achieve is, as opposed to being in a position where we're able to teach people information, our quest is to be able to share with people the experience of growth and share with people the experience of what it means to be living a, a different kind of life, a life which is at some, some level um, an experience of Torah, whatever that means. Uh, so, so let's begin with just a, b- a brief introduction, some things that we've said last month, but just to get everyone back onto the same page. The idea of religion in the modern world has become not only outdated, but also looked upon in a very negative light. Um, It's looked upon as archaic and primitive and not relevant. And in a way, perceiving Torah as a religion in itself is problematic. Because for for a few reasons. One of the reasons is it categorizes it with... Islam and Christianity and then you've got Judaism and if you have that kind of categorization that's the kind of way you're looking at things so then the way you see mitzvahs is ritualistic and traditional which is great if I happen to be part of this club so then fantastic I can be a member but what happens if I'm standing on the outside and I see a people a group of people that have got these rituals and traditions so that may be interesting for me to study but it won't be compelling for me to join but we have a different perspective our perspective is that Ah, new lady coming in. I think she saw us. Welcome. He found it, we're impressed. You okay? Yeah, I feel shell shocked. No, she's so pretty. She's got so many faces looking at I think it's going on the left and right. right. Thank you, sorry. Okay. So, so if, if, you, if you see it in that way, it's not, if, it's, if it's a religion, so there's no way that, there's, any, there's nothing reason why anyone else should join in, the, join in the fun, unless, of course, they feel for some reason that they are. But what would be if the single Torah is simply a very deep experience a deep experience of life and uh, really see it's really unfair because now all the new people have to and the, and the sad thing is you, you bought me my deodorant <laughs> so so if Torah, if Torah is an experience, it's not, it's not, it's not a, a ritual, it's not a tradition, it's an experience. So then, well, how about if I share that experience with you? So that's not really a point of argument. So now, the experience of Torah, let's say, is an experience whereby we're connected to the deepest facet of reality. Um, there's different levels of reality. There's a level of reality which we can see with our senses, 
a level of reality that we can perceive with our emotions. And then there's this other level of reality. The other level of reality is called this reality which is beyond everything. It's called the reality of, um, call it spirituality. Uh, it's a world where things work in a very, very different way. How, in terms of like level of comprehension, can I get like a brief census of like... Yes. You, you're all present and here. So, for example, do you just close the door? I'm scared that like men will kind of try sabotage. Um, so now, part of, that, part of that thing, that thing called exploring the reality, it works two ways. It works externally and internally. It works externally, meaning that we look around at the world and there's two ways of seeing the world. There's a way of seeing the world which is separate from the Bayer and the way of seeing the world as part of the Bayer What happens when we see the world as separate to the Bayer For example, I look outside and I see a tree. Looking at a tree, there's nothing wrong. What happens if I look at a tree and I say, wow, it's amazing, Hashem, you're amazing for making that tree. That's okay. What happens if I say, wow, that tree is so amazing, I'm going to bow down to it and ask it to give me its fruits. Is that a problem? That's a problem, right? Why is it a problem? That's a problem because we've taken the tree and we haven't said that Hashem is in the tree but rather the tree is Hashem. Now what happens if I have a, a talent? For example, I'm extremely clever. And instead of saying in my cleverness I see my neshama rather say I am clever and I claim the identity for myself. That's like making just like in the world of trees in the world of nature when you take something you say this thing is a god so when i take a part of my personality and i say this is me it's like making a part of me that's a god in the words of the gomorrah and the svarim this is called one of two things either gaiva or gasas gasus aruach gasus aruach is a strange phrase which means solidity of spirit spirit is the most ethereal thing that you can't really touch and feel and you can't concretize and gas means strong and solid. So how can you have something which is a gas ruach? It's a contradiction in terms. Well not really because if you think about it this way that what are we what is the most the, the essence of who we are? The essence of who we are is not our, our bodies, our emotions, our thoughts because in regard to all of those we can say my body my feelings, my thoughts. So the thing about me that's, that's the, the most fundamental thing, the deepest thing, is my ruach. My ruach. And the ruach is, you can't, you, can't, you can't touch it, you can't feel it. What happens when you say, I'm gas ruach? Do you know what you're doing? You're taking this part of you which is completely impossible to, to quantify, to make into solidity, and you say, that's what I am. You limit yourself, and you create a boundary around yourself, and you make out of yourself, in a certain sense, an avodazara. Did you get that? Did you get that? Did you get that? Not really. So one of the other people who got it can explain to Mrs. Newman. Did you get that? I think so, but can you just say please can you say the translation? Okay, like this. Let's say that you are um very clever. Very clever. Very clever. 
How do you relate to cleverness? There's two ways of relating to cleverness. Way number one, you look at yourself and you say, wow, I'm really clever. The cleverness and I are like so closely linked that I look at that as who I am. And the way of gauging it is what happens when someone challenges the thing that you claim to be. Someone says, you know, you're actually quite stupid. And they show it to you. How do you feel? If you feel like deeply hurt, it means that you look upon that thing as yourself. If you feel, oh, okay, so I'm not as clever as I thought, and it doesn't bother you, that means you don't associate that thing with yourself, it's just something that you need to use. For example, example I gave my wife, imagine you're driving, on the, driving along the highway, and the car starts flashing and pulls along the side of you, and says, your left indicator isn't working. And then the way you respond is, oh, I can't believe you said that to me. Oh my gosh, how dare you? How dare you? Like, have some sensitivity. So that's laughable, why? Because a car is a machine I drive, and I want to make sure it's in working order. So what if someone comes to me and says, the way you treated that person is really not nice? How do you respond? How could you say that to me? Why won't we, why won't we just say, oh, my machine called my emotion of connection has got a broken part to it, I better fix it. Mrs. Feinberg. What if it's something that is a role that like Hashem gave you? Maybe not okay, so like for us, like being a mother. So what if someone comes and tells you that you're a bad mother? So not that. I mean, not. <laughs> <laughs> so what how would that hurt? Is that something we should also be distanced from or is that something that's like Sure. Yeah. Your motherhood is something that you have to use. It's not who you are. Your motherhood is, what is it? It's a vehicle that you can do something with. It's not the end, it's not the end of it, right? Mm-hmm. Your motherhood is a vehicle to, to build a world, to inspire a generation. To, it's, it's a key that you... That's your avoider, okay. precisely, but that's not who you are. Your mother is, you know, is, you, can you exist beyond being a mother? Right? So that's not who you are. It's something that you use for a reason. Someone says, no, you're a rotten mother. You say, that's so interesting. Tell me how. <laughs> it's like fantastic. So you say, well, the way, like, the way you talk to your children is like, really not on. So you say to yourself, whoa, tell me how it could be better. So why do we get emotionally involved in these things? Because we have, a, we have a distorted perception of who we are. And we put our identity in the kalim as opposed to the atzmius. So because identity is in the kalim, we become emotionally charged about the things that we really should be using and not us. Which now, it becomes very complicated. So, well, then who is the me? So this becomes really hard to grasp. But who is the me? So the neshama. But the problem with the neshama is, it's like Hashem. And what do we know about Hashem? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> All we know is that we can't know anything. So what I know about myself? Absolutely nothing. But, it's real. So now I'm sitting in a room. So I'm sitting in a room with a group of students. I want to talk to them about tshuva. So how can I be speaking about tshuva? They don't hold of mitzvahs and avayas. So guys, you know, I really think it's Elul and you should do tshuva. And they say, Rabbi, what's Elul? Um, so I say to them, I don't want you to do tshuva. I want you to discover a deeper part of who you are. They say, oh, that sounds cool. So look what the Rambam says. Um, uh, 
Umeshane Shmoi, a person as part of the tshuva process, has to change his name. What does that mean? That means if previously my name was Rachel, I should now be called Rivka. So now this is amazing. What differentiates human beings from animals? There are four levels of life, four levels of existence in this world. Doimem, inanimate, somech, plant life, chai, animal life, and then the last level is what? Sorry? Medabe, human life. Now, let me ask you a question. Human life is called the speaker. If I would be given the job of categorization of the different levels of life or parts of this planet, do you know what I do? I'd go for Doimem, inanimate, sure. I'd go for Tzumach, no problem. I'd go for Chai, and then I'd go for the last one, Wahamedabeh. What's the differentiating point between man and animal? That man can speak and animal can't? Sure. But the other things, you know, man is upright and animals aren't. So why, why not call the last level Zoikaif? Why call it Medaber? That's the defining point of what human being is? Why not call them something far more basic? Boicher, a chooser. Isn't that what differentiates us? We're not instinctive, we choose. Now, my wife recently taught me this amazing lesson that our reality exists in nothingness. But she explained to me in more abstract terms. I'm joking, she's concrete. So like this, in every situation, there's a stimulus and a reaction. So, for example, I'm going to put my... Watch this. This, this desk is going to react at the same time every way, every time. I'm going to put my fist down and it's going to make a noise. Watch this. How come the desk one time doesn't decide, you know what, I'm going to be silent? The desk always responds, doesn't he? Why? Because there's a stimulus, the force of my fist coming down, and there's a reaction, the noise that's created by the impact of that force. The desk can't say, you know what, I actually don't feel like reacting. Why? Because the desk is not human. What does human do? For humanity is defined by there's a stimulus, and there's a reaction, and here we go. And then there's a space. And what happens in that space? Everything. Where do we live? Where do we become human? In the space. In the nothingness. Because that space allows us to reflect and think and say, well, how should I react? Someone says to me, you know, you're a terrible mother. I think to myself, again, if I'm, if I'm not in the realm of humanity, so I say, I'm a terrible mother. You're not even a mother. What do you think you're talking about? And boom, I'll respond. But that's stimulus reaction. That's like, that's like the, the table, right? What happens if I say, okay, you're a terrible mother. And you think, boom, space. I can react. I can scream at the person. I can take a deep breath. I can think about what she said and maybe she's right. I can think about what she said and maybe she's wrong. I can choose to smile. I can choose to laugh. I can choose to scream. I can choose to run away. I can choose to bury my head in the pillows and start crying. I've got such a range of choices. And all those choices exist in that space called nothingness. Stimulus, space, response makes us human. So why does it, why are we called Medaber? So let's go back to the story of creation. As you all know, take the material, the raw matter of earth, take, that's one part of who we are. Bring down the neshama, boom. 
put them together, the Adam the Nefesh Chaya. And now you become a Nefesh Chaya. So life, as we know it, is this composite of these two polar opposites of this, the dirt, the earth, and the heaven. Heaven and earth mesh together, and here we have who we are. That's why we're half angel, half animal. Or men, half angel, half animal. Women are like three quarters angel, <laughs> one quarter animal. Um, so, so then you've got this, like, this, this, this kind of this, and it says, And the Targum Unklu says, as you all know, that becoming alive means becoming able to speak. What does speak got to do with living? Well, that's what we are. Aren't we choosers? Aren't we choosers? So I just want to tell you the story. It was like so frustrating. Um, I, was, I was coming here with, with my wife and uh, we're driving the car. And then as we get to, to the road over there, this kind of this taxi blocks the road. And uh, we can't get through and the taxi gets out and starts talking to his friend and we start to hoot and the taxi says like we're sitting there like doing nothing literally a minute two minutes hooting hooting come on what are you doing and he's, oh, he's talking to Shlomi eventually gets into his taxi and moves on so frustrating isn't it frustrating it's frustrating right so as, as you know I just made that up it was purely fabricated but had I not told you that that would have been the reality that you all lived with Correct? Where do we live? We live in a world of words. In the world of words, what do we do? We create. What do we do? We create realities. So where does our essential freedom of choice lie? It lies in what words we choose to describe things. And with one word, we can either create or destroy a person, a place, an idea. So why is a person called a speaking spirit, a rachmamalala? Because that's what makes us uniquely human. Because we have given the power to create worlds. Where does the power lie? Watch this. The power lies in the gap between stimulus and reaction. In other words, the power lies in the world of silence. Good. One step further. What are words? What are words? The Rambam says that a person should change their name. There's a difference between what's called a name and a sign. Or a symbol and a sign. A symbol is when you have a construct, something tangible, which represents something conceptual. A symbol is, for example, if I want to advertise a spa and have a picture of a bath, so the bath becomes a symbol of the spa. Whereas a letter in the English alphabet, an A, has no connection fundamentally. The fact that it's triangular and has a middle bar doesn't necessarily support the sound A or A. Neither does a B or C. Those are, those are signs. Those are symbols. Symbol means there's a connection between the visual representation and the concept behind it. A name is the sign or a symbol. Is a name something which is, but it's just a representation? Or is a name something which is arbitrary? Just happenstance. So the way we understand names is Kishmoi Kainhu. A name is fundamental. A name is a symbol of who I am. Yehuda is a symbol of Malchus. Ruvain is a symbol of differentiation. Yosef is a symbol of Kedusha. Each name has embedded in it what it contains. So says the, the Rambam, in order for a person to do tshuva, they have to say that they have to change the name. 
And what do they do? Mishane Shmo. You have to change your name. Now, what happens to many a person that wasn't from and becomes about Shiva? Very often, they'll literally change the name. They used to be called Peter, now they're called Pesach. They used to be called Ferran, and now they're called Fival. They used to be called called Wolba, and now they're called Velvul. In other words, there's, there's a transition. You change your name. What happens when you change your name? You create a different symbol to represent yourself. You become something completely different. And that's what the Rambam says. He says, um, I'm someone else, and I'm not the same person that did those things. So, in other words, the fundamental point of tshuva is learning how we can change our names. How do you change your name without changing your name? It means that you're able to look around at your life and do everything differently to the way you're doing it before. And now, why is it important for us? This is not Musashir, this is a cradle where we focused on working with the tzibur, a tzibur that are trying to come closer to Torah. Why is it important for me to figure out how I can do tshuva and how I can change myself? The simple answer is that what we're trying to do over here is trying to share an experience. If I've never done tshuva myself, how in the world am I going to teach someone else how to do that? If I've never played the guitar myself, and I have to give a person guitar lessons. I've read all the books about playing guitar. I know the theory perfectly. And now a person comes to the guitar and says, tell me, how do I do this? You say, I want to continue to look at my book again. There's a famous story which I may have spoken to you about before, but it's just so important. It should be said again and again and again. Um, there's this person, a creator of an, of an art museum. And the creator of the art museum, he's got, an incredible, he's got an incredible knowledge of each and every single painting. And he knows when it was painted, who it was painted by, and the materials that were used. It's fantastic. And then there's the janitor. The man who walks around making sure that all the paintings are well kept. Now, if I want to know anything about painting, who should I ask? The curator. The curator. No giving away the story. You ask the curator. So you go to the curator and he tells you all about the painting. There's one small problem. The curator's blind. He's never seen the paintings. So we have to make sure that then when we sharing the experience of living, when we sharing the experience of living Torah, we are not blind curators, that we've got all the information and none of the experience. Because you've got all the information and the experience, so what happens when we try to teach a person how to do it? Imagine you've read every book about swimming, but you've never been in a pool yourself. What do you think the chance of teaching a person to swim are? Well, I'll tell you what, try it. Read up about swimming and then teach your child to swim. <laughs> it's not going to work because you don't know how to do it. You know about it, but you don't know it. You know about it, but so we have to know it. So now, what would be compelling a person, you have a group of students coming into you and you want to share with them the idea of Elo. So what would you say to a student that doesn't believe in God or doesn't know if they believe in God or not, doesn't believe in Judaism or doesn't know what it is, and now you want to share to them and share with them an experience of Elul. What would you say to them? So you could say to them as follows. 
The Pazuk says, Umaltem is or which means you should cut off the covering over your heart. And your necks should no longer be stiff. So there's two things. There's something called orla salev. Orla salev. And orla is always a covering over. And the lev is our sense of being. It's where we are. Are we present in this moment or are we not? And being present in this moment is covered over with this cloth, with this covering. So how do we extract... How do we extract the covering? You can't have a stiff neck. What does stiff neck mean? Suppose the neck is stiff. It means you can only see one perspective. You can't look from side to side. You can only see this. It's called narrow vision. If you haven't got a stiff neck, you look here. Oh, wow, that's, that's amazing. Whoa, incredible. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. You can see the whole range. What allows a person to be able to live in the experience of right now and take away the covering over the experience of life called Orla Salev, the ability to see something different to the way I saw it before. The way I saw it before, we all, to a certain degree, live in a tunnel. We only see the ways, the way we see them. And when we turn our eyes and we see, oh my gosh, there's a completely different way of living. I'll give an example. We are recently in South Africa and we were walking from one place to another and we had a, we had a God accompanying us and his name was Johannes. He's a black guy, I think, in his late 20s. And I was just speaking to him about his life and he said, well, he's working, he's been working in the security company for the last seven years and he's doing it so he can send mon- money to his mother so she can, she's managed to buy a house in a small rural area. And I said, have you traveled at all? And like, South Africa is not, not a big country, but like, not a small country, but not such a big country. And he says, no, he's, he's never really traveled. I said, have you, ever, have you ever seen the sea? And he says, no, he says, it's a dream for him to see the sea. He says, he doesn't think he'll be able. He says, because like, it costs approximately like two, three hundred shekels to get there. He doesn't ever conceive of himself getting that kind of money. So now when you see that, it gives you a completely different perspective about how other people live. And it opens you up. It redefines what is called comfortable uncomfortable, what's called wealth and not wealth. And therefore, you get a different perspective of your life. Now, that's not only true in being exposed to different people and different ideas, but even in terms of our own lives. In terms of our own lives, the way we perceive things can be narrow-visioned, but the problem with being narrow-visioned is you can never become someone who you're not, and therefore you can never do tshuva. This is a, a, a takona that the altar of Kelm used to do. I've spoken to this about before, but every time I say it, it becomes more and more true. He said, you have to look at everything you're doing right in order for you to be able to see things differently. Look at everything you're doing right and assume that the thing you're doing the most right, you're doing the most wrong. And show how the thing that you're doing the most right is really wrong and self-serving and distorted. And then you have the capacity to perhaps see what's going on in your life. So I recently had this experience that... um, the thing which I thought I was doing the best, I'm actually very possibly doing the worst. And what is that? Well, a lot of my time I spend speaking to people and offering them guidance and advice. So in my mind, I'm doing such an amazing thing. I'm like such a help to people and I'm really serving them and I'm amazing. And then someone pointed out to me that really my desire to help people is a crutch that I need to support my own core belief that I'm worthy. 
And therefore, when someone asks me an opinion or for guidance, and I give it to them, so that says, oh, you're okay. And then when I keep on doing that, I keep on feeling the sense of validation. So really, it's a complete distortion. In sense of, instead of me trying to understand and assist people, I'm trying to scaffold myself and using the people to do that. You with me? So in other words, the thing in my mind, which is the best thing I'm doing, is really the worst thing I'm doing. Right. Right. So, That's what makes it complicated, right? right? So I mean, I can't stop doing that. Right. But I can't continue. So now I'm stuck. So imagine what my wife has to deal with. Like, I go, oh my gosh, they're whiskey. Although it's a very difficult thing, because often your greatest talent is the potential for the greatest distortion. So now I have to somehow figure out how I can use a talent without the negative side to it. And then you be, in other words, in the same thing you become different. Do you understand? Yes, how do you do that? So? Correct. Yeah, yeah, it's a work in progress. You have to like, rethink. But the whole point is you have to rethink. You have to look either side and like, get a new perspective. We always have to be getting new perspectives of ourselves. And we have to be, you know, like the Bible Musa said, the point of Elul is not to become better, it's to become different. And that's really what we're trying to do. Really, the whole purpose of our Kail is to change dramatically as human beings. And then in doing so, not only we do tshuva, get close to the Olam, close to one another, we also develop the skills to communicate the process of change to people that are already going to be going through it. And it's such a complex process. It's so complex to create sustainable change. I was just telling the, the, the gentleman today in Kailal that there were three bochim that came from, from England and they were in yeshiva for a period of two years, which is a long period of time when you think about it. And not one of them is religious today. Talking about people who are learning and they were like going for it and they were davening kavon and everything and it just disappeared. So sustainable change is a very, very complex thing. It's not something which you can take for granted. And if we're going to like kind of try to assist people to make this radical transformation from one part of being to another, whoa, that's going to be quite complicated. So we have to get involved in the process ourselves. So there could be no better time to do that than, than Elul. Because Elul, there's an energy of change in the air. But obviously, the energy of change is not something which should be short-lived. If you think about it, there's a, there's a, amongst you showing him, there's different approaches to motivations for tshuva. One of the motivations for tshuva, which is looked upon as a negative motivation, is when we're in trouble and we do tshuva. And the Ram says the problem with that motivation is that as soon as the trouble disappears, the tshuva disappears. So I think it's comparable to how we often feel coming up to Rosh Hashanah Elul that we feel like almost we're in, we're in trouble. We have to kind of justify ourselves on Yom Adin so we better do something. Now if you ask me and say, well, what, what if I could like take away Yom Adin? Would you be happier than just continuing as you were? <laughs> sure. But I've got all Yom Adins, I'm going to have to change. Well, you understand why that's a bad motivation because it means post Yom Kippur, no one's going to be thinking about Shiva again because you've got over the hurdle. So that's bad. We have to figure out a new motivation for change, which is much more real. Good. Any questions? It's amazing how you all are took that. Any, are there any tools for doing like, what we described before? Because you'll always be um, subjective. Right. So, so how do you really like pull yourself apart with the? 
Beautiful. So, so, so this is like where it's kind of coupled, and I think this is a very sensitive t- topic to talk about because it can be taken very wrongly. This is where the capacity to be open to criticism comes in. Because really the only way we're going to really see where we're going wrong is when we, when we accept the criticism that's given to us. Because we don't see our own faults. We just don't. We're like totally blind. The faults we see are the faults we want to see. But the real stuff we're always going to turn a blind eye to. So people around us, they can see those faults. So, so really, what would be a great exercise is to actually have a... This, this is kind of... This, is, this was actually the takana for for your husband's fight was to, to find, to criticize each other. They've got a cri- criticizing partner and he'd have to like put, they'd have to put out something that they feel are going wrong and have a critique session. It's the most valuable thing in the world. So I don't know if it would be wise to do that with your husbands. I can see they're going very wrong. <laughs> I get this phone call. Rabbi Siegel, yes. Um, I hate you. I say, oh, that's such a brilliant criticism. I love it. Um, yeah, so, but, but that's great. In other words, in a safe place, when you get criticized, that's like so valuable. Like, it's way more valuable than a compliment. Because you actually get to see something you can work on. When I was in South Africa, like, or, like after I spoke, and like people would come, oh, that was so nice. And then one guy came and said, I completely disagree with everything you said. That was by far the most valuable comment I had. Because it made rethink everything I said and like, was really productive and thoughtful. Like if someone says to me, like, oh, that was great, what does it do for me? And that's why like, in our relationship I find it important to point out to my wife where she's going wrong. And she responds generally with maturely by taking the rolling pin and maturely saying, well, slam, slam. So, okay, that, that's something to think about, something to think about um, over Elul. But... It's really kind of, I think, that the point is, is like so clear. If we want to teach people how to change, well, we've got to learn how to change ourselves. And you're right, you know, one of the ways is accepting criticism, but we'll discover new ways as we go along. Right? The whole point of the Bali Musa we're teaching them how to change. That's what they're doing. So we're just beginning. We're going to learn lots of new methods. It's going to be really great. And uh, then we're going to like, do Chiva Shlema. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. And then like, into Cheshpan, like everyone else will like forgotten about Yom Kippur, which would be slamming away Chuva and like Hanukkah Chuva and then like Pesach Chuva and like it's going to be amazing. Okay, so enjoy it. I'm going to slink out and I hope you ladies kind of this. It's obviously like, you know, the men over there, so right now we're safe. But they could come out at any time. I'm not guaranteeing anything. Uh, I mean, I, I just, yeah. I, I, I don't really see the big deal about it but like the guy who's like running thing here obviously is very sensitive to their feelings even I think they're not sensitive to their feelings but um, um, good any questions before I leave you in the faithful hands of I guess speaker can I just ask something sure, sure. two things first of all um, talking about most of these people to change through criticism surely that's not the way we're going to go into care of Oh, that's a great point. So, like, you know, you get to a guy and, like, you, you meet a person, you meet this girl and you say, Hi, how you doing? Your life is such a, such a wreck. You're a disaster. Um, but there will be a point where you are going to have to say to them, like, you don't, it doesn't have to be, like, a kind of a harsh attack. You can say to me, like, do, like, do, you, do you enjoy, like, just getting like completely slammed drunk and waking up not knowing where you are in the next morning. Uh, like, or you could say then like, what does that feel like? 
and they say uh, disorientating. You say, well, actually enjoy that feeling. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not really. One of the ways, the best ways of doing it, is you ask, you create a, a place where you can share something about yourself which you feel like. Like, I feel like I'm so lacking in this area. Do you feel like you're lacking in an area? And then like, you invite them to self-evaluate. Because without self-evaluation, so then like, we really are stimulus reaction. We're animals. Our consciousness, the ability to see ourselves makes us into humans. So there will be times when you have a strong enough relationship that actually having the ability to point out to someone what's going wrong will probably be like the greatest help they can do for them. Right. So then, this is my other question, point that prior to criticism there needs to be a good relationship or and right. from the part of the recipient a sense of self-worth because if I'm coming and thinking oh I'm already criticised but really I'm, I don't have a sense of self-worth then criticism is just going to So do you know how we decide perfect do you know how we describe self-worth self-worth means that your orientation of self is beneath the kalim and it's fundamental meaning it's not because of the way I think or do it's like fundamental which means it's really untouchable in other words, what allows us to be capable of criticism, that's removing the oras of is if my sense of identity is my neshama, that's tohari, it's impossible, it's incorruptible. So anything anyone can say to me can never adjust that or make that be- be- worse. So the person can say to me the worst things in the world. I say, oh, that's really interesting. All you've done is told my indicator it's not working. That's all you've ever told me. You've never said anything about me. And you can never say... doesn't have to like, work on this sense of self before they open themselves up to criticism. It could be that the two, in other words, the two work together. When I open myself to criticism, what I'm really saying is, this is not me, help me fix it. If it's me, then I'd be really scared because it'll be so intrusive. But if it's not me, it's just like, you know, someone's hang, banging a hammer and their hammer's broken. Your hammer's broken. Oh, great. Or you say, I don't know what's wrong with my hammer. Can you help me fix my hammer? It's, it's all it is. So the minute you move your identity away from your calium, so then you become open to criticism because all you're asking is for someone to fix the tools that you're working with. Okay? Good? See you later. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hats and jackets.